Now, while this may be the end of the series, this is not the end of the subject. Because a third of Scripture is prophetic in nature. And because we teach through entire books of the Bible, God will repeatedly bring up this subject of His Son's return. Because He wants to prepare us. He wants to help us. He wants us to be ready as His people to go to heaven in a way that's honorable to Him. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon marks the final installment of Dr. Brogy's series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, God's Future Prophetic Schedule. Pastor Carl will be preaching on the coming apocalypse as he summarizes the book of Revelation over the next three days. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Father, you've not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For your word says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness towards those of us who fear you. You promised as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. And just like a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on those who fear you. Father, you know our frame. You're mindful that we are but dust. Father, we're thankful that we can pause in your presence on this Lord's day, that we have the opportunity to worship your name, all that it represents, all that you are. We ask in this hour as we worship through your word that we'd gird up our minds for action, that we would be alert, that the Spirit of God, the one who gave us this book, who inspired every single word, that he would help us to understand it and to apply it. Father, I pray for all those who will hear this message later on, many who have never met Jesus as Lord. May today be a turning point. May you use this message to show them their need. And for those of us who have crossed that line, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word and turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and go to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. We come to the, this morning to the very last and final message, the 31st message in this series that we began over a year ago. I know some of you thought it might take me until the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah to finish, but here we are. This is it, the end of this series on God's prophetic schedule. Now, while this may be the end of the series, this is not the end of the subject, because a third of Scripture is prophetic in nature, and because we teach through entire books of the Bible, God will repeatedly bring up this subject of his son's return because he wants to prepare us. He wants to help us. He wants us to be ready as his people to go to heaven in a way that's honorable to him. Now, a number of you became believers during this series. Some of you joined the church, and so you've not heard all 30 messages. 
So I'm going to give you all 30 messages today, okay? So strap down your uh, pew belt and get ready as we work through the book of Revelation. We're going to go through the entire book, Lord willing. Now, the Revelation was written around 95 AD. God used the Apostle John to pen it. And these that we're going to begin with this morning here in chapter 22 represent the very last words Jesus spoke, even after those special appearances to the Apostle Paul. And so since this is the end of this series, I want to begin at the end of the Revelation, chapter 22, follow along, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now the very final words of Jesus ever spoken that we know of. He who testifies to these things says, yes. I am coming, to which John responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. Now, we've seen over the last 13 months that one of the most neglected, misunderstood, and misrepresented subjects concerns Bible prophecy. Yet here in this last chapter, if you look down at verse 10 in your Bibles, John is both commanded and specifically instructed, instructed not not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. John, what I want you to write is not to be hidden. It is to be revealed. It is to be learned. It is to uh, be applied. And of course, unlike Daniel's prophecy that was closed until the end of time, this prophecy was open for all of time. Why? Because the ascension of Jesus has taken place. And since the ascension of Jesus, Daniel can be understood in light of revelation. And since the ascension of Jesus, the Lord could come back at any moment. Nothing prophetically is ever needed to take place. And so back in chapter 1, where we're going to begin this morning, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, I want you to see how this great revelation opens. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. And because this is a unified content and described as revelation, there's no such book as the revelations, all right? Now, we may say in the South, 50 cent for 50 cents, and that's okay. But listen, there's no book called revelations. This is a single unified revelation from beginning to end. The word is apocalypsis, and it means to unfold, to uncover, to reveal what was hidden. In fact, in some of our English Bibles, it's not at the top of chapter one called the book of Revelation. It's simply called the apocalypse. Remember, those book titles are not inspired. They're put there like chapter and verse divisions to help us find our way around. And so rather than be some closed book, which it is for so many people, God wants it to be an open book. He wants us to understand it. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from those seven spirits who are before his throne. So the greeting here in the opening chapter is from him who is, who was, and who is to come, namely God the Father in the context, but also from the sevenfold spirit before the throne. And we know from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 12, this is a reference to God the Holy Spirit because of his unique sevenfold ministry. And then in verse five, and from Jesus Christ. And so this letter is from the triune God. It's from God the Father, it's from God the Spirit, and from God the Son. But the emphasis in the book concerns God the Son. It's a revealing, it's an unfolding about him who is termed here as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And so he's highlighted because he is the hero of this book. He is termed here the firstborn of the dead. Now, if you know your Bibles and you know that five people were raised from the dead in the Old Testament and three were raised in the New Testament. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that all those who are raised to life only to die again, Jesus was resurrected out of the grave. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Now notice Revelation 1 and verse 9. I, John was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's on this small, rocky, crescent-shaped island. Here's a picture of it. It's uh, next to the Aegean Sea. I've been there once. I went into the cave that tradition says John actually recorded the revelation. But nonetheless, it's on the southwest coast of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It's about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide at its largest point. And of course, it was used by the Romans as a place for political prisoners. And so John is here because of his testimony, because he stood for Jesus. He's here banished to this island. And so while he's on Patmos suffering for the cause of Christ, the Bible also says he's in the spirit. He's on Patmos. He's at the University of Christian Persecution, I suppose you could say. But he's here in the spirit. Look at verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So this happened on the Lord's Day, what we call Sunday. He's in the spirit, and he hears this loud voice that's compared to the sound of a trumpet. And it belongs to the Alpha and the Omega, who has just been referenced in verse 8. It belongs to the first and to the last. And we learn in verse 17 that this is none less than the Lord Jesus himself, the beginning and the end. Now look at the command. It's unmistakable. We are told, he is told, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are literal churches. These do not represent seven epochs of time. These are seven literal churches that were in existence in the first century that in many ways represent every church across the planet. Here's a map showing the region where these seven churches lie in Turkey. And it's not by accident he writes to these seven churches. Maybe apart from Ephesus, some of those churches you don't recognize. I mean, why not write to the church at Rome or Corinth or Galatia. Why these seven churches? Because in these seven churches, you have a picture of every church. Every church in some way, shape, or form, for good or for bad, can identify with these seven churches. 
And so here's John. He is commanded to write to these seven churches and remind yourself, this is not John's revelation. This is God's revelation. And throughout time, the church has been studying this. Look at verse 13. John on the Lord's day hears this loud voice and he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So he sees Jesus standing in the middle of the churches. It's much like what we studied a few weeks back when we talked about the doctrine of the triune God from the Old Testament. God, on the one hand, is physically, literally present in the tabernacle. On the other hand, they're praying to him in heaven above. And while the Lord Jesus is omnipresent, he's everywhere as the eternal God, he's also standing in the midst of the churches. And by the way, for where two or three are gathered in his presence, he's here in his midst. Sometimes Christians will say, well, I just watch you on TV at home. Well, look, if you're sick and unable to come, that's a good thing. I'm glad you can benefit from it. But it's never a substitute if you are able to be with the people of God. While Jesus is everywhere, there's a special sense in which he is here. He's not out there this morning. He's in here. For where two or three are gathered in his name, his presence is here in a unique way. And so we are not to forsake our gathering together. And I'm not saying you can't meet him in a Bible study or in your prayer closet. But on the Lord's day, this is where God calls us to assemble. Now look at verses 14 to 18 as he continues to give us a picture of the glorified Messiah, different from the picture when Jesus was in first round glorified body after the resurrection. This is so different because I don't think anyone could have stood to have embraced him in this body, but this is what he's like in heaven today. Look, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining sun in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And just so we wouldn't mess the book up, this is one of the few books in all the Bible where God gives us the outline for the book here in verse 19, as this chart helps picture. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, and the things which are, that's the present, And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So he writes about the past, about the exalted, glorified Christ that we will be able to embrace in our glorified body. Then he writes about the things that are present, the church age. That's the age we're in right now. God is building his church. And then future things, the consummation. And so in chapter 1, he describes the past, chapters 2 and 3, the present. And then chapter 4, all the way through the end of the book, the future. And I have no doubt you could further subdivide the revelation, but God gave us this outline so we couldn't mess it up, lest we be all confused and discombobulated. And I think this outline is so helpful because it allows it to speak for itself without man manufacturing some uh, interpretation that's not true to Scripture. 
Now, follow the introduction in the pro- following the introduction in the prologue that's found in the first eight verses, John then writes about the things that he had seen. And so he records what he had seen in heaven, this magnificent, glorified Christ. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he writes about the things that are, about seven churches that were literally functioning with pastors there in the first century, the things that are. Here's a map, by the way, of those seven churches so you can see them. Seven churches, kind of like a horseshoe. Church number one is Ephesus, a church that Paul spent more time at than any other church, three years, and it becomes a launching pad to plant all these other churches from which it spread. Now, Ephesus was extremely healthy at its start. But many years had gone by, decades. And now we would describe it as the formal church. And that while they are as doctrinally as straight as an arrow, they had lost their first love. Verse 4 says, I have this against you, that you have, lost, you have left your first love. And there are churches like that across the world today. They are doctrinally sound, but they have lost their love and passion for Jesus. And churches are made up of individuals. And I suppose in every church, there's some aspect of these seven churches even sitting here today. Then if you go 35 miles up the road here in the map, you come to Smyrna. This is the fearful church because they came in under great persecution. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. Now we'll give you the crown of life. By the way, this is one of two churches in which there is no rebuke, only praise. And these were people who were willing to lay down their life for the cause of the gospel. And church history typically demonstrates that a church that is persecuted is a church that is strong. Tertullian said that the, the, the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. God uses persecution often to spread the church, to purify life, and to use those individuals within that assembly to preach the gospel. From there, you travel another 50 miles north of Smyrna to the church of Pergamum or Pergamos. You can translate it either way. And I call this the faltering church. And they had some good traits, but notice negatively what it says in Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the, in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of churches like that today. They are married to the world. Leadership looks the other way when there's sin in the rank. Then you go another 40 miles southeast to Pergamum, to the church of Thyatira. This is a false church because they were corrupted internally by allowing false doctrine to unfold. Look at verse 20. Jesus spoke to them and he said, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. False doctrine always leads to a false, corrupted life. 
What you believe always influences how you behave. And they let this woman in their local assembly take over with her error. If you travel another 30 miles southeast of Thyatira to Sardis, you come to a fruitless church, kind of a ho-hum spirit kind of church. Jesus spells it out here in chapter 3. And in verse 1, he said, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There's a lot of churches like that in America today. They call themselves alive, but there's no real fruit, not the fruit of the Spirit. No life, no joy. Then you travel another 30 miles here on the map, southeast of Sardis, you come to Philadelphia. This is the faithful church. Remember, just two churches of which there's no rebuke. And Philadelphia would certainly be the kind of church we would want community Bible church to be like. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power, which is not a downer, little as much if God's in it, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this church had an open door and they went through it. And he's describing, again, different kinds of churches during the church age. Finally, you come to the seventh church, about 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And this is a fashionable church. They seemingly had it all. Wealthy, today, beautiful facilities, the nicest cars out in the parking lot, beautiful homes, wealthy saints. But they were wretched and miserable. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus said to them, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now beginning in chapter 4, all the way through chapter 22, John writes about the things which must take place after these things. After all the events just described in chapters 2 and 3 of those seven churches, now he projects out into the future. And he repeats it twice over so you can't miss it. And what we find in chapters 4 through 22 is the complete schematic of God's future prophetic schedule. After these things I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. Now, we'll show you the things which must take place after these things. So as this chart shows, we've been in the church age, but the next great event on the schedule of God is the rapture of the church. The church is caught up. It's called the hapazo. And from the Latin translation, we get our English word rapture. And it's not by accident here in verse 4 of chapter 4, you find these 24 elders. Why? Because during the time of the Great Tribulation, the evaluation seat for Christians takes place in heaven. And God judges our works based on our faithfulness. We did a whole message just on that coming judgment. And what do they do with their crowns? They don't wear them on their head braggadociously, but they take them and they cast them at the feet of Jesus and they worship him with it. And so John arrives in heaven and the scene here in chapter 4 underscored in verse 3 is a picture of God the Father on the throne. It's a courtroom kind of scene because God is preparing to judge all the inhabitants of the earth. And yet in the midst of this awesome scene, heaven is filled with praisers. And so there's a classification of angels called the four living creatures with the 24 elders who are representative of the body of Christ. 
And by the way, once that door is open to let the church in at the rapture, you do not see the church again until chapter 19 when Jesus comes back with his saints. So here in verse 11 of this chapter, they're praising God the Father on his throne, and they're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So they are acknowledging he is the unique, only God, the creator God, therefore he has the authority to judge the world. And so John is taken to heaven, and he is given this scene of what is about to happen. And so as we step here into chapter five, we find the same throne room. Heaven, again, has been praising the Lord, and it's like John is given a front row seat, and we with him, to see what God is going to do. Because life on earth is about to change really, really fast. It's going to get quite dark. Look at chapter five and verse one. A change takes place. I saw in the right hand of him, the father, who sat on the throne, a book, or literally a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now remember, we've already identified the one on the throne as God the Father in chapter four. And he has in his hand a scroll. Remember, there's no codexes books like we have them today. They hadn't been invented yet. Everything is on a scroll. We might call it a, a book, but here's John, he is weeping because no one can open it. No one seems worthy to open this seven scroll book. And so in verse two, there's a question. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And then in verses three and four, a loud voice fills the whole universe and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. But then we learn in verse five that Jesus can open it. Notice, and the one and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So chapter five reveals how Jesus has the title deed to the earth. Now remember, Adam initially had authority over the earth, but because he yielded to the sin of Satan, it was taken from man and it was given to the evil one. And so in the temptation, when Satan said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, that was a real legitimate offer because Adam had lost it to Satan. But here's the Lord Jesus, because as this chapter will unfold, as the redeemer with his own blood, he paid the price, the scroll is given to him. And so John stops weeping and heaven explodes with praise. Look at verses 12 and 13 here in chapter five. Now they're giving the same ascriptions to the father that they gave to the son for they are equal. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, chapter four, they worship the father as the creator. Here in chapter five, they're worshiping Jesus as the redeemer. Let everything give praise and glory to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 031. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, remember that you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bobbaline. You can also listen to The Bobbaline online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures. Thank you.